think if um, you had asked me before COVID what my worst nightmare would be when we were discharging from the NICU with the child who had chronic lung disease and had was still on a he was still on oxygen when we went home, I would have said a respiratory pandemic would be the worst thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> so it's um, it definitely had some oh my gosh some huge effects um, on everything. Yeah. Um, well, and look and look at how you made it through, even though it was your worst case scenario, right? Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Mighty Littles podcast. I am Dr. Zimmerman, and today I'm super excited to welcome Gretchen. Gretchen and I are going to be talking about her experience with her pregnancy and delivery and NICU stay and kind of everything that came about because of that NICU stay. She went into preterm labor at 22 weeks and some change and ultimately delivered her son at 23 and 1, and he weighed in at 580 grams at birth. So Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we have you start by introducing yourself? to our listeners. Thanks. Um, I'm really excited to be here. My name is Gretchen. Um, I am a Coast Guard veteran and I now um, live and work in Northern Virginia. I'm also a single slash co-parent 50-50 with Alex's dad um, and he is a micro preemie. Um, who is now just over two and a half years old and doing really well. Talk about your pregnancy and kind of leading up to when you knew that things maybe weren't going the way that you were going to want them to go. Right. Um, Well, I mean, for starters, um, I don't know. They don't know if this has anything to do with it. I think there's just not enough research, probably. Um, so we had gone through a little bit of fertility. Not not like a lot of people go through when you hear that, but I have PCOS. Um, so we had we knew that when we started trying to get pregnant, I came off of birth control. It was like, it took us like 13 months, is basically. Um, and at six months, they sent us to fertility. I ended up going on um, metformin. Um, and we tried for seven months after that. And I finally was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I got, so it was getting so disappointed and upset cause I couldn't find anything else like wrong, um, that would have been causing issues. And we thought the metformin would work. Um, so I just was like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much stress on us. It's too much stress on me. Um, and lo and behold, I was pregnant the day that I said that. So, um, as, and I hate it. I hate it when people say you'll get pregnant when you're least expecting it, but it was, um, kind of interesting. So yeah, so we found out in September, um, and I was thinking that I had a pretty normal pregnancy and had kind of forgotten about this whole section at the beginning, um, I had to be put in progesterone, which wasn't a big deal. I think that had to do with the PCOS, but at nine weeks, um, I was at work. I was still working up until I was 20 weeks, um, on duty at the Coast Guard station. I was at a small boat search and rescue station as a mechanic. Um, and, um, I had a, I just had a sub, let me see if I can say this subchorionic hematoma bleed. Yep. Subchorionic hemorrhage, some subchorionic hematoma. You know, what's interesting is that that seems to be super common in some of these interviews with with NICU moms is that there was something that happened towards the beginning of pregnancy that kind of was a setup. 
Right. So I don't know. I mean, even afterwards, they told me they don't think it was related. Um, Because I at that point, then I think I went on bed rest for about two weeks. Um, You know, we got some extra some extra sonograms done and had some extra appointments. And then by 11 weeks, they were like, everything's fine. You're not high risk. Um, We'll just see you regularly. Um, So what happened then? So I was I think I was like on duty and on on boats and stuff until I was like 19 weeks or so and everything was fine. Um, but we had scheduled the anatomy scan early because this was right around Christmas. Um, we'd, I'd scheduled the anatomy scan early and it ended up being too early. At the anatomy scan, um, because I couldn't do the full thing, they did like a partial. And I remember so clearly them talking about my cervix and everything looked great, that it looked beautiful and perfect and everything was fine. Um, so then we rescheduled the rest of the anatomy scan for um, somewhere in my, between my 22nd and 23rd week, because um, I would be back from the class up in Virginia um, and they were just going to roll with it then. So they got what they needed early and then they were going to get the rest. So we come back from visiting our families and I am just at the beginning, like 22 weeks for like 22 weeks in one day. Um, and I guess it's 20, 22 weeks. Um, the, yeah, 22 weeks even. Um, I started that day, um, I started to feel some pressure in my cervix. Um, and I was feeling what I know now were contractions. <laughs> um, but have, since it was my first pregnancy, I never had any pain. I, I mean, I had contractions. I was in full labor at one point and I just never had any pain. I don't know if it was because my uterus was so small or what the deal was, but I, I thought contractions were going to hurt. And for whatever, I'm not saying that they don't, I'm sure they do for everybody, but um, for whatever reason, I just, it wasn't painful. I just felt some pressure across my belly. Um, I had also like just just started showing like just popped out so i thought it was from that or alex moving around or something um but i was feeling pressure on my cervix and it was enough for me to say i think i'm going to send the doctor an email and see if he wants to see me early but not enough for me to say maybe i shouldn't go to virginia tomorrow (laughs) so so it's like saturday night and i just shoot an email off to the ob instead of calling them like I should have done. Um, And I think I'd had like a slight change in discharge too. And I was just like, hey, just wanted to let you know, wondering if this is anything. It's probably not, I'm just being silly. I'll talk to you guys next week. Um, Sunday morning, I wake up, I get in the car and go up to Virginia. I think I was supposed to, I had a class that started Monday and it was over Thursday. I think I was planning on driving back on um, Friday or something. So I really wasn't, it was just a couple days and I would be back um, and everything's fine. And I, I go up and I check into the barracks. Um, I had like these two really young roommates, like 18 and 19 years old, who were super sweet and super excited to have a pregnant lady with them. And we were talking about that and I'm going to bed that night. Um, and I started to started to feel like maybe the pressure that I was feeling across my stomach and in my cervix maybe wasn't 
normal. Um, so I did what everybody does and I Googled it and it was like, either you have gas or you're going to have a baby. And I'm like, all right, I probably just have gas and I go to sleep. Um, also like, I think kind of in denial at that point that I was just like, I and was starting to feel like something was going on, but who wants to think that when you just drove 500 miles and are eight hours away from anybody, like my parents were eight hours North. My husband was eight hours South. Um, and just didn't want to really accept that maybe something was wrong. So um, I woke up that morning um, around 5.20. I don't know what woke me up, um, but I woke up and I knew something was wrong. Um, and I just like had this like feeling of dread. So I stood up and then I had the just immediate rush of fluids. So I'm thinking I'm bleeding again. Um, and was kind of calm and like, okay, I've done this. I've been through this. And I go into the bathroom and there's a little bit of blood, but most of it's not blood. And that's when I knew that something was really wrong. Um, suspecting it was amniotic fluid. Um, so still was able to stay pretty calm. I packed a little bag and I woke up one of the girls and said, I'm going to drive myself to the hospital. <laughs> um, and she's wanting to come with me. And I was like, please don't panic because I'll panic. So just go back to sleep and tell them I left. Um, and I walk outside and I didn't have cell service in those barracks. Um, so I walked outside and I called the o OOD, the officer of the day, um, just in my head to like, let him know, Hey, <laughs> this is who I am. I'm leaving base, like unauthorized. Just I'm just leaving because something's wrong. And the panic in his voice. I wish I knew who this person was who answered the phone at five in the morning. Because I'm pretty sure he was expecting like a, this is so-and-so. And I got drunk and wrecked my car off base and I need to be bailed out of jail. And I was like, I'm five months pregnant and I'm in labor and I need to go right now. <laughs> so it was this panic. Um, so he told me, you know, sit down and we're sending an ambulance. And that was when I just like, it like was hitting me that something was really not okay. Um, so then I'm sitting in January outside of this barracks, 500 miles from any of my family members, completely alone, um, knowing something's really wrong. What were you thinking at that time? Like, um, so you're trying not to panic. You know, something's going on. And the more people you tell the more right. real it feels. So were you in a, everything's going to be fine. I'll deal with it later. Or were you in a, I think I'm losing this pregnancy or were you in like, where were you, where was your head? I don't think that was a thought that I was willing to have until they told me. Um, so I, so I, and it's hard for me to even wrap my head around it. I remember feeling like really angry. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not really religious, but let's say at a higher power, just feeling like really angry that this was happening, um, and being really scared. But I, I don't, I, I remember making a lot of phone calls and being very like, I guess, pragmatic and like, I need to figure out like Aaron is in is in Savannah with the dogs and the cats and we need, he needs to get up here. Part of me understood that like this was gonna be a minute um like it was a problem part of me was in denial and then i think i just went into this like make sure everything's taken care of um i always have tended to function um in that sort of way when something bad is happening where aaron hasn't so i was like i need to tell him what to do i need to tell him to get the dogs to the kennel and do that not that he couldn't have done that but that's where my brain was like make sure husband knows 
everything to do before he leaves um, because that helps me. Yeah, you focus on the list and the pragmatic things like I need to do X, Y, and Z. And then your mind doesn't go to this is what the implications are. This I'm just going to deal with this task right in front of me and get through these things. Right, right. Um, I do remember at that time, I hadn't been feeling Alex move for very long, but I wasn't feeling him move. And that was kind of like a panic thing for me too, that I was like, why am I not feeling um, him move? But I I do remember I called my friend Dan. Um, He was a storekeeper at our our unit. We were still our really great friends. Um, But when I couldn't get a hold of Aaron, I called him because I knew he'd be awake and on his way to work. So I called him and just said, Dan, I'm in labor. I need you to go to our house right now. And he's like, excuse me, what? <laughs> like, I need you to go to my house and wake up my husband. He's like, you're in labor. I'm like, stop talking to me and just go to my house. So, um, and was just telling him like, this is what we need. And this is what I need you to tell the station. I need you to do this. Um, so yeah, I was just in that very like, yeah, that mental space of like getting the ducks in a row. Um, got a hold of my parents, got a hold of Aaron. Um, and then my, my brother was stationed also in the Coast Guard about four hours away. So he got on the road immediately um, <clears throat> to come be with me because it was going to take everybody else a lot longer. Um, so I get picked up by the ambulance and, you know, do you want us to take you to the emergency room? Like, I, I think so. I don't, you tell me. <laughs> No, we don't want to examine you. Then I don't know what to do. So, um, and I'm in the ambulance. I'm starting. They're just really calm. And like somebody even asked me the question, if like, did I really think it was amniotic fluid or maybe I just like peed myself a little bit? And I'm thinking like, I think I know the difference between my urethra and my my vagina. But sure, let's say that's a possibility. I guess. So I don't, I don't think so. Um, and was like, at that time, I was also like, just continuing to like, slowly leak fluid. So, um, so by the time I get to the hospital, I'm thinking, I'm going to feel really stupid if this is nothing, and just kind of feeling bad. Um, and I don't know what the hospital was told. And I also don't remember what hospital this was, because um, this they took me somewhere else later in the day. Um but we get to labor. They just took me straight to labor and delivery, which surprised me. And there were two nurses like waiting for me. And as soon as, as soon as they roll me in, they pull me off the stretcher and like start taking my clothes off on the way to the bathroom. Um, and at that point I'm just bleeding a lot and it's bleeding and there's amniotic fluid. Um, so that's, I mean, then it was like every hope that I had had an embarrassment of like, maybe I'm making a big deal out of nothing was just gone. Interesting that, while something is happening, your thought is, I don't want to be a burden on somebody else. If nothing is actually happening, I don't want to be the person that goes in. I, I can totally relate to this. Um, I went into labor with my first child at 32 and change. Okay. I went into work. I was rounding in the NICU. I am a pretty efficient person and everybody knows that I'm a very efficient person. And I was just really slow that day and I could not get through things. And at that point in time, we still had paper charting. And so when I would write a TPN, right, like a nutrition, the fancy looking mellow yellow nutrition that goes through the IVs for preemies, you would put the sheet in the chart and you would carry the chart up to the front. And I literally couldn't carry the chart up to the front because I just was sore. My belly was sore. 
I just thought I'd walked around a little bit too much the day before. My belly was just sore. We go down to lunch. Um, I go through the lunch line. I get my food. I go to sit down in my chair. And I literally cannot sit down. Like, I'm trying to put my hands behind me on the chair so that I can try to sit down. And, you know, one of the nurse practitioners that I work with, and she's a very good friend, uh, is like, no, you've got to be kidding me. You're slow. Your belly hurts. You're not efficient like you normally are. And you can't even sit down in a chair. We're going to labor and delivery right now. And I'm like, no, I don't want to be a burden on anybody. I'm sure it's nothing. I'm sure I'm just a little bit tired, right? Like that's the first thing that goes through our mind is, well, I don't want to be the mom that, that is making a big deal out of nothing. And we get upstairs and they put me on the monitor and Linda, my friend says, do you want me to call Chris? And I'm like, no, that's my husband. Like, there's nothing wrong. It's going to like, I don't want to call him and worry him unnecessarily. There's nothing going on. And then they put me on the monitor and I look over at the monitor and it's kadoom, ba-goom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And I'm just banging out contractions every two minutes. And the practitioner's like, so can I call him now? And I'm like, (laughs) I guess I think so. I mean, I still think this is all much ado about nothing. But I mean, I got a shot of turb. They put me on Procardia. I mean, I they I had to stay overnight. Like I truly was having a lot of preterm contractions. Right. But my initial reaction in the cafeteria when I physically cannot sit down in a chair because my belly hurts so bad is I don't want to make a big deal out of nothing. And I think your story, my story we know when something's not right and our no person should ever feel like they are imposing on the medical team when there's something happening worst case scenario you go in and everything checks out okay that's great that's what we're there for people should not feel guilty about that you should not feel guilty about that i should not feel guilty about that even though we did have things that were actually going on even if it had been totally okay Right. That is an okay use of healthcare resources to go in and say, hey, I'm just a little bit worried. Can you make sure everything's okay? I just think it's interesting how that's where our mind goes is I don't want to make a big deal out of nothing. Right. And I I mean, I think it's kind of twofold because on one hand, it's like not wanting to irritate or like waste time as medical personnel. But on the other hand, like pregnancy was nothing like I thought it was going to be. I mean, birth is a whole other story, but was nothing like it was supposed to be but um yeah even just like everything with pregnancy it was not what I was expecting I don't really know what I was expecting but even like what ended up being contractions weren't anything like I was expecting it to feel um and I don't know if it would feel different um if I did like have a normal pregnancy normal whatever that means um in the future like if they would feel similar or what but just every I mean every sensation about it was just so different um feeling Alex move and like the nausea even was like just nothing was what I expected so I don't know um and then I think there's also the like the denial part is if I if I say something's wrong then something's wrong um and I really you know you don't want something to be wrong um let's go back to you stood up and now you're bleeding and you have amniotic fluid. And so you know that you're not mm-hmm. there for no reason. Then what happened? Right. 
Yeah. So they took me and they put me back on a stretcher and they took me into a room and I don't, all of this happened so fast that the doctor, um, he came in, the nurses were like getting me hooked up to stuff and he came in and just said, I'm doing a digital exam. Didn't even introduce himself and started doing a digital exam like two seconds. And he stops and he looks at me and he says, I am so sorry. Um, and essentially what had happened was at that point, um, I was dilated to three centimeters. So I had probably been slowly dilating um, for days. So, um, and what's, I don't know, this is always crazy to me. I never had a sense of like what the dilation really meant. Um, so like I measured earlier, um, like a quarter is about, is almost two and a half centimeters. And if you take two pennies and you lay them side by side, that's almost four centimeters. Um, when Alex was born, I remember Aaron brought me his footprint because they had given him that and he had two pennies on it laid end to end and his length, his foot was that length. So like I'm dilated to three centimeters with a baby that has a foot that if you lay it completely flat is only four centimeters and he's breech. That visual of two pennies is four centimeters and the length of his foot was was you know four centimeters and you were dilated to three centimeters I think that really puts into perspective how it is that um preterm babies can just kind of slide out parts of them can just slide out even when you're not fully dilated I think your description of those pennies in that visual probably describes it better than any description that I've ever tried to give yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, oh my gosh, he, and did he ever just slide out? It was crazy. Um, yeah. So at that point, so what, I guess what they called it. Yeah. I had a bulging bag. So the, because I was, my, my water had not completely broken, but I had a really like severe bulging bag that he, they barely even had to like go in to find it. Um, and what was happening was that there was a puncture or perforation at the top of it, like by my cervix. So the pressure from it coming through my cervix was causing the amniotic fluid to leak out of that perforation. Um, so they essentially said, your water is going to break today and then you're going to have the baby. And I was 22 weeks and two days at that time. So he tells me, um, once we get through that and then the introductions, he tells me, um, they won't do anything at this hospital. I don't think, I don't know when they would have intervened, but it definitely wasn't that early. I said, we won't, we can't do anything. Like we won't intervene this early. There's a hospital in Norfolk that will intervene at 22 and five. So our goal is going to be to keep you pregnant for three days because they won't take you until 22 and five. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure on those numbers. Cause I think when I was there, they were telling me 23. Um, so I don't know whether 22 and five, but um, they were, I think they hadn't given me like, I, I'm not sure about the medications anymore, like the magnesium to stop, that's to stop labor, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't give me any of that there. I know I was at that hospital from about 6 a.m. to about 10. Um, my brother showed up at some point during that. And in that time, um, Norfolk General, am I allowed to say hospital names? I don't yeah. have any problems. Okay. Norfolk General Hospital. Um, they had contacted them. They said, we'll try to take her 22 and five, but we can't guarantee it. They called back an hour later and said, we can take her today. So they put me back on an ambulance. My brother followed and we went to Norfolk General. And then the whole thing starts again, where I am um, on a stretcher, very uncomfortable stretcher waiting. Um, and 
um, they decided to take me straight to labor and delivery. Um, I think we were just like literally waiting for somebody to get discharged so I could go in there and, and they're telling me, um, if your if your water breaks, like that's, you know, we need to hold that off as long as we can, but I still had the bulging bag. Um, <clears throat> and then it broke. I believe I was in labor and delivery. It is so hard for me to remember. I think I was down there for like a day and a half. So like two nights, um, they moved me up to antepartum in the middle of a night of the second night. Um, but they, you know, they admitted me and they basically were telling me, um, you have to make it to 23 weeks. We won't do anything. If you make it to 23 weeks, there is a chance, but you're, you're probably going to deliver today. I think they told me, um, what was it? 75% of women whose water breaks deliver in 48 hours. I think that's the number. Okay. It's, you know, it's interesting because it's somewhere around there. I think it's really hard when we start talking about statistics. It's really difficult when you're talking to parents that are in your exact situation. Right. Because it's my job to tell you what we're facing and it's your job to hold out as much hope as you can and believe that things can be okay. So are you going to deliver in 48 hours? You might. Could you stay pregnant longer than that? You might. If you deliver at 23 weeks, is your baby going to survive? He might. If you deliver at 23 weeks, is it possible that your baby won't survive? Yes. Are you 100% sure that you're 23 and one today? Or could you be 22 and six? Or are you actually 23 and five? Because you have PCOS and most people are not just having intercourse on one day and they can pinpoint the date and time that they got pregnant. Now, if you did IVF or you did IUI, right? So in vitro fertilization or in utero insemination, IVF or IUI, you can tell me the exact date that you probably got pregnant because you've taken out all the other possibilities. But there's so much variability right there in that 22 to 23 weeks. And your one case and one baby, it's not like you're going to have a part of a preterm delivery or, you know, like it's it's either 100% or it's zero. There is no 50% or 75%. And right. so it's that's I just think it's so hard to go on percentages in that particular window because anything is possible right and we and it was really interesting um and it was like I I don't necessarily I was thinking about it a lot like there's a lot I I honestly don't think I want to talk about with that first day in the hospital because that that first day was the worst day of my life because um they basically kept on our request sending neonatologists to talk to us and I remember the first one Erin wasn't there yet um my brother Eric was there and she came in and they were doing an ultrasound at the time and just very clearly was like, your baby's not going to survive. He's going to be born today. Like that's an all likelihood and um, was giving me the statistics. And it was, you know, not just like surviving, but it was like, he's breached. So we have to do a C-section. We have to do a classical T-C-section, which means they cut my skin across, but they cut my uterus up and down. And this was going to be after my water broke, just cut my uterus so much that it's, it it would be really, I mean, I can never have. It would impact your future pregnancies tremendously. 
Yes. So yeah, I mean, they were so there was that side where the OBs like they don't want to do that, and the neonatologists are telling me like you know, especially because he was breached, that they couldn't. I wouldn't be able to deliver vaginally until he was 28 weeks because of the skull not being um, formed enough. So it, they'd had to do the C-section. There wasn't like an option to do a vaginal birth. Um, it's really difficult accepting the consequences of that, that he wouldn't survive the birth. Right. So it's really difficult to do breech deliveries for small babies because yeah. when you, if you haven't seen a preterm baby, their, their arms and legs and bellies are really very spindly. And yeah. like we talked about, their leg can slip through four centimeters. Their leg can slip through a not totally dilated cervix. And so one of the really big risk factors is that the body of the preterm baby can come out of a cervix that's not dilated and then kind of cinch back down and then it closes and now the head can't come out. And But for the preterm babies, you can get head entrapment, which has really significant consequences for the outcome of that baby. And so if you are going to go down the route of full resuscitation and full intervention for your baby at these younger gestations, you really do need to do a C-section so that 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 the head doesn't get entrapped. The problem is when you're doing a C-section at those younger gestations, it's exactly what they were talking about with you. Your uterus is not really, really expanded yet because the baby that's in there and the bag of water that's in there is so small that they can't do that low transverse C-section, which we know is the safer way. So you end up with a class c-section so you can never have another vaginal delivery you're more likely to have a uterine rupture you're more likely to have um, abnormalities and how the placenta adheres to your uterus in future pregnancies so there are big complications or i don't want to say complications but there's big implications for if you choose to get pregnant in the future if you have a classical c-section you know there there are some institutes that um won't resuscitate until 24 weeks. There are some that will resuscitate at 23 weeks. And there are more, um, increasingly more and more, that will offer full resuscitation at 22 weeks, provided there is um, there are certain caveats. You have to have gotten beta-methasone. And, and what, some of the places are saying, we won't do a C-section at 22 weeks. If you deliver at 22, two weeks and your baby is live born, then we will, but we won't actually do a C-section because right. of the implications for mom. But at 23 weeks, we will do a C-section because yeah. then the outcome for babies is very different at 23 weeks compared to 22 weeks. So there's right. there's just so many um, factors that go into those decisions about when to mm-hmm. do everything. And, and that, that line is really changing with time because we have gotten better and outcomes have gotten better. Right. Um, and, and I, you know, I think all of the things that they were talking to you about, all of them are very true. And you just yeah. never know how the cards are going to pl- get played. Right. And it wasn't just even like survival. And that's the thing, because they, the number that they gave me, and I, I actually had to go through, I had to go through my Coast Guard medical record recently. And like most of it is this seven days that I was in the hospital or like a week and a half, I guess. Um, and it's, I mean, it was pretty rough read cause it's, I had forgotten the numbers. Um, but the number that they gave me initially was 
they thought he was going to be born that day or like in the next two days. And that, that was, it was 3%. And then they told me if he makes, if he survives it, if he's in that 3% chance, um, he's got like a 1% chance of not having a major debilitating, we'll never even know you're his mother disability kind of thing. Um, and then, and that's like the major ones. And that was like 1% chance that he wouldn't have one of those. And then it was, you know, like, he could have cerebral palsy, he's high risk of autism, and these things that like Aaron and I were like, we don't care, like we want to try um, everything, but it was just this laundry list of like, basically, there's no shot that you're going to get the outcome that we ended up getting. Did the neonatology team come back and give you updated numbers? you know? Yeah. It was actually, I mean, even that day. So that one, she came in and like, I don't have, I think that like I needed to hear that because I needed to know what I was signing up for. Um, so there's not like, I'm not like mad at all that she told me that. Cause that was when my brother was there and that was, and it was, I mean, there was a lot that went on and I guess like Eric and I have never talked about that day again, but he basically sat with me for like six or seven hours before anybody else came. And it was just, you know, all of them like most awful day of my life. And um, having had a witness to that was really important to me. Like somebody who knows what happened that day, but I don't ever want to talk to him about it. And I don't think he ever wants to talk to me about that day either. And it's just like this like secret that we have together that we'll just like, that day it was so I mean it was just so so awful um but so she, she came and talked to us and then like Aaron showed up around like five or six that night the next shift neonatologist down and it was like different it was like the he could he could I'm not gonna tell you it's not gonna happen but like he could make it you could stay pregnant for two more months like who knows <laughs> that was so it was this you know back and forth and meanwhile we have the OBs who are very concerned about me being able to have another pregnancy um and the whole time i'm like you think that there's any circumstance in which i'm going to say heck yeah get me pregnant again (laughs) so like this is not not a fun ride right now so um and two years two and a half years later i still feel that way yeah 23 weeks when i woke up that morning um, we assigned all the paperwork that when the time came, I would have that C-section. Um, and you could tell, like, they were kind of like, mm, are you sure you want to do this? So, cause they really wanted me to wait till 24. Um, cause it, I mean, it was just, it was a wild ride. So they, to backtrack a little bit, they kept me in labor and delivery that first night. Um, the night of the 14th, my water ruptured completely. So, but, and it was crazy. My stomach just went like right down. So I had like, I went from like just having a bump to like. I looked like I maybe ate like an extra piece of pie or something like just so fast because most of it was water. So I also had this vision that my baby was a lot bigger than he was. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't realize how small a 23 baby. It's really, really tiny. Um, So they gave, they were giving me steroid shots for his lungs because as soon as the water breaks, you stop strengthening the lungs and they were giving me medicine to, to stop the labor. Um, and it did, it stopped the labor. Um, and then into the second night, they were um, just, I wasn't going back into labor. So they were like, we're going to transfer you up to the antepartum floor. And this is where it was just, just like funny in retrospect, I guess, as we had this resident, this third year resident. It just seemed, it was like two or three in the morning, just tired. I think he'd had like a few deliveries earlier in the night and he just seemed really tired. And they like, don't really know what to do with me. Cause I'm like, at this point I'm four centimeters dilated. So I go, I open up 
to what his actual foot size completely flat is. Like the longest length of his foot is four centimeters. Um, and he's breached and now my water's broken and there's nothing separating him from the outside world except um, the birth canal. So this resident is comes in and is like, look, we've made the decision, like we need this space and it doesn't look like you're gonna be going back into labor. So we're gonna move you upstairs. But if you feel anything in your vagina, you need to let us know. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, the big thing is if it's the umbilical cord, um, cause that would cut off supply. So we need to like, if you feel anything, we need to know immediately. Um, but if you do, like if, if his legs or arms or anything starts coming through and at this point, we're just hoping he turns around and he plugs your cervix closed with his head and you can stay pregnant. Like that was the hope, but he's like, so let us know if you feel anything in your vagina. And I was like, well, I've been feeling something in my vagina for like hours. I just assumed y'all knew this. So they are immediately like, oh my gosh. And they bring out, he's just so tired and it's like trying to juggle patients. And he, he does this, um, ultrasound he's doing it and he just looks so defeated and he's like his feet are through your cervix both of his feet are just like hanging out so this is i just remember very clearly january 15th so we he's like you're gonna deliver like you're gonna deliver day this was 22 weeks and three days um so keeping on my back blah 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 Three hours later, they do it, and Alex had just decided it, he wasn't quite ready and had, like, popped them back up inside. <laughs> so, but I just remember this look on this, his face when he, when I was like, I feel something in my vagina, and the doctor was kind of like, oh, here we go. And then, like, the defeat on his face, and he's like, yep, you've got two feet just hanging out in there. <laughs> so... So now, January 15th, um, we call it Foot Birthday. Yep. So... And we go and we buy Alex shoes. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to celebrate his feet delivering on January 15th. Yeah, the first year we got these little shoe, these little shark shoes. And the second year we got um, light up T-Rex shoes. So we had scans every day. I stayed at four centimeters. Um, they were every, you know, they do scans every four hours, do heartbeat and stuff. And it was, um, he was right at the one, 130 to 150, moving around and growing. Um, they weren't sure if he was, like, going to make the one-pound mark. or. Um, but they were, I mean, they were great. My family was there. Um, my sister actually flew back from Sweden early from, like, a summer trip. Um, my brother and my sister-in-law. And, um, and it was starting to look like we made it 23 weeks. They were scanning him more often. At this point, we signed the paperwork saying we want all the interventions. Um they've done all kinds of tests and, and it didn't, there wasn't like anything wrong with Alex that would have caused the pregnancy to, um, so to be, so it was purely like your body just didn't want to be pregnant anymore. And we don't know why. And we still don't know why that happens. So I don't think I heard the term incompetent cervix until after he was born, which was nice, but I don't. And I think it was, maybe a couple of months after he was born that someone said that to me and I was like, excuse me. <laughs> right. Yes. What a mean thing to say. You're, you have an incompetent cervix. It's like you are an incompetent mom, right? Like it's right. so negative towards moms and it's nothing that you can do anything about. It's just what your body does. But yes, incompetent cervix is when your cervix opens early. Like he's got these little scars that I see every day. And that's like, because my body couldn't hold him inside. And that's the only reason he has those. And like, that's 
someday I'm going to have to explain to him why he's got this like big scar on his back and why he's his belly button is all messed up and stuff, you know, and like his feet have little calcified scars in the bottom from all the stabbing and stuff. I mean, overall, it was, I think what I remember being on the antepartum floor was that we would just started to get comfortable and it was like, we were going to be there. We had like a routine and like cafeteria had good pizza. So Aaron would go get pizza for us every night and we'd have it at like 10 o'clock at night and go to sleep. We thought we were going to be there. So my parents actually like left for the hotel early that night. And we're talking about, I think they were talking about maybe like one of them going home or something. And cause we thought I was going to make it longer. And then, three o'clock in the morning I wake up need to use the bathroom go to the bathroom and I'm like sitting there and I'm like something doesn't feel right and I reach down and he kicks me with his little foot so I yeah panic I jump back in in the bed you know gently and and wake Aaron up and I'm calling a nurse and like something is and I couldn't even like I couldn't like I knew it was a foot but I couldn't be like there's a foot I was like something is coming out of me so she's nurse I guess I found out later she had never had an emergency yet. Like she'd been on the floor for a while, but she hadn't had an emergency until me. And she was kind of this like badass, like kind of like what you think, like a biker chick. Um, and she comes in and she spreads my knees apart and goes, I see a foot and just looks like she's going to cry. <laughs> Closes my knees. And then like, it's, it was so fast. It was like, I mean, they, you know, like mm-hmm. being wheeled down the hallway on the elevator, they're hooking me up to things and they're telling like Aaron was with me for a little while, but not even that long because they like took me on surgery prep. I think from um, the time I woke up until it was like, th- I think it was like 327 until he was born was like less than 40 minutes um, with the surgery, which I mean, just seems so fast. And I remember when they were, you know, I mean, they're like, she is over me. They're cutting the sheet. Like I had, didn't have concept of what an emergency surgery would look like. Um, but I remember looking up at the anesthesiologist cause they're like waiting for me to fall asleep. And I look at him and I'm like, when the hell am I going to fall asleep? Cause I'm like, I just want to be out. And I, cause I'm, it was just terrifying. And he goes, um, and then his head started to spin and I go, never mind. But yeah, I mean, that was, and we knew that's what, like, we knew this was our worst case scenario and it was Aaron wasn't in there. Um, and then I like my worst fear, which is what was waking up from surgery, not knowing if my son had made it and that, and then you wake up and, and waking up from anesthesia is awful. Cause you like, like I kept asking and they kept answering me and I couldn't understand it. So I just keep asking the same, like, where's my baby? Where's my baby? How's the baby? And they're like, they, I know they kept telling me and they even told my mom, they're like, she keeps asking and she keeps asking because I just couldn't the question you never want to have to ask in your life like, right. where maybe that was yeah. just because I mean you kind of you went through the gamut right like oh something's wrong but I'm kind of in denial I'm not going to accept that something's wrong oh now I'm at the hospital and they're telling me I'm going to deliver this baby today and lose this baby today oh now he's kind of staying put and we're on antepartum and we're just going to wait this out this is my new life just hanging out in the hospital. Oh, his leg is totally out. And now I'm having my baby today and I'm under general anesthesia and you wake up and now all you want to know is what happened and you can't even remember what happened. So you have to ask over and over and over again, where is my baby? Did my baby survive the delivery room? Right. And it's, I mean, it was, oh gosh. I mean, like back to the decisions they were having us make too, was like, the decision was, do you want us to do everything? Do you want us to let you deliver today? 
Um, cause it was like, if we, they could allow me to deliver and they basically said they were gonna like, so I would have actually delivered, they would have given me and Alex a ton of drugs. So there wouldn't have been pain, but I would have been able to hold him or you're going to be unconscious and you might miss his entire life. Like what kind of, who wants to make that decision? Yeah. There's like moral, impl- like it feels like there's moral implications to it. Cause what, what, what if I choose to do everything and he's just in pain? Like, so that was like, you know, what if we choose to do everything and he has birth injuries and he's just like in pain and cold and hungry? Not that you guys leave them cold and hungry, but um, you know, like, and that's his whole life and I never get to hold him. And he, that's his whole life is three weeks and he doesn't make it like that's feel. It's just like, it's impossible. It is just impossible decisions um, to make. And I feel like um, I feel like I've heard people say like, well, I would have done this. or I would have like, don't even talk to me until you're in that room. Like you do not, get any kind of an opinion on what kind of decision you would make yeah and I don't know if I'd make the same decision again and it's not because I don't appreciate the outcome I just know you don't get as lucky as I got twice I was just really grateful when the decision was no longer mine to make because it is an impossible decision and and nobody knows what they would do until they are in that room and what you think you're gonna do is not always what you end up doing but I, you know, I met parents who made different decisions than we did or made like made decisions earlier at like 22 weeks or didn't make, you know, and that's, I don't think any of them made a wrong decision. But when you're, when you're in it, it feels like you're like door number one, door number two. And there's like one door, there's a prize there and you don't know which door it is. And it's, and it's, you know, I mean, I think everybody has to make the decision that's right for them. And that's, um, I think, you know, I've actually been hesitant to do anything like this because, um, what I don't want to do and what was, could, was, I want to say people would see us, you know, like when Alex was like 10 weeks old and they would be like fresh with their 23 weeker and like, be like, your child gives me hope. And like the statistics are the statistics and, him surviving didn't make it more likely that their child would and it I didn't want to give like I was so like afraid of giving people false hope um and I still am to a degree because it's I mean it's it's not it's rough and medicine's getting better and like that Alex is alive like he wouldn't have been if this happened 10 years ago um and I don't know if he would have been if he'd been born in any other hospital you know just like the stars aligned and and it worked out um but yeah, I mean, I guess it's just like, yeah, it's just so, I don't think you know until you're in that room on that particular day at that particular moment with that particular pregnancy, like what you were, what you would do. Um, and it's, it's tough. I don't know. I don't ever want to be in that position again. Yeah, I know. I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to share your story and, yeah. uh, and you're, and I think you're very honest about how difficult those decisions are when they're coming at you and how hard it is to have an emergency C-section under general anesthesia and not know when you wake up if your baby is still here or not. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.